0: Hello, and welcome to the summer 2013 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, executive director of the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York, and I'm with Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the chief editor and writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, which, if you don't know by now, is the most comprehensive monthly, with the exception of the summer. There's one summer issue. Monthly publication summarizing the uh, latest LGBT legal news, uh, legal and legislative news affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. And uh, I'm going to say it again, Art. I'm going to tell people to give us some stars in iTunes, and to write a review, a positive review. Would you add your your request to that? I think
1: that would be very helpful to us in spreading the word. Absolutely.
0: All right. So with that, let's uh, start with a federal case out of Kentucky. Uh, This is United States uh, v. Jenkins involving the first prosecution to go to trial for a hate crime motivated by anti-gay bias under the federal hate crimes law amendments enacted during President Obama's first term. Um, As we'll discuss, this ultimately all turns on the legislative text, as it often does, of that amendment and a specific phrase in that amendment. But before we uh, jump into that, Art, I was hoping you could give our listeners a sense of the coverage, basically, for the LGBT community under the amended law and why it was so significant.
1: Well, what this did was it added to the list of characteristics in the federal hate crimes law, sexual orientation and gender identity. And it also requires a federal – Nexus through interstate commerce—that is, some instrumentality of interstate commerce has to be involved in the crime for it to uh, be a federal hate crimes case. Uh, so, ordinary, ordinary burglaries and things like that—that that all that where someone was targeted because they were gay—probably won't qualify. But uh, in an, a prior opinion in this case, U.S. v. Jenkins from last year, the judge said that because they used a motor vehicle. And they wrote it on roads that received federal highway funds that were used in interstate commerce that there was enough of a nexus here to make this a federal hate as, crime As you case. say that, I
0: recall it's, it's – if there could be a nexus, there probably will be. It's a pretty you know, broad interpretation.
1: It, it, it really depends on the facts of the, of the case. But not every case can be made into a federal hate crimes case. But this one could because of the nature of the crime.
0: And that brings us to what is often the case with these hate crimes by their definition is that we have – we should set the stage with a brief discussion of really what are brutal facts in this case. This is pretty horrendous. Uh,
1: Well, Kevin Pennington, who is the victim here, who is gay uh, and also dealt in drugs. Uh, and and that's you a, say that because I, that's a complicating factor. Yeah, in this it case.
0: seems to matter yeah. to to, to well, how this case is disposed of. Well,
1: and, and it depends who you believe as to what happened, because what happened is very contested, and there are four defendants, two of whom pled guilty. Uh, the defendants are cousins: Anthony and uh, uh, Anthony Jenkins and Jason Jenkins and Anthony's wife Alexis and Anthony's sister Ashley. And Ashley and Alexis uh, did not actually physically assault Mr. Pennington, but they aided and abetted in his kidnapping. Uh, What happened is the four people in a truck drove over to Pennington's place, uh, according to the male defendants, ostensibly to do a drug deal, according to the females, uh, to uh, assault Mr. Pennington because of his sexual orientation. Uh, the grand jury believed that all four were motivated by Pennington's sexual orientation and uh recommended that they be indicted uh for the for uh, a hate crime. but in any event, the women say that uh they lured Pennington into the truck uh with him not knowing that the guys were in there uh ostensibly uh it had to do with a drug deal, but they really wanted uh to facilitate the guys assaulting pennington because he was gay or at least they pled guilty to that uh and uh and then they took him to ultimately they, a, they drove a, him to a deserted road a deserted and road beat,
0: beat him they savagely beat him,
1: they beat him terribly uh he managed to escape at one point and uh to get to police and to get medical assistance although he was severely injured
0: and if i have the facts right i mean this is why it becomes even a possible hate crime i mean as they're beating him I mean, do I have the facts right that they're right. screaming? The women are screaming homophobic, homophobic epithets. Absolutely. Yes. Okay.
1: Uh, so it's it's clear that there's evidence of of the motivation there. The men weren't screaming the homophobic epithets; they were busy kicking him in the mm. head uh, to the point where he passed out at one point, and a permanent boot mark was left on his face and things. like And at least one of them was wearing steel-toed boots. Amazing. Uh, it's really uh, it's pretty horrendous. So in any event, uh, originally, these criminal charges were brought in state court, but then it was decided to pursue it as a federal hate crime because of the connection that they kidnapped him and they uh, used a a truck that was moving on a highway, uh, which is an instrumentality of commerce, and so there was a connection there, and the Justice Department wanted to take this over. They figured this was a good prosecution uh, to initiate enforcement under the uh, new hate crime amendments. Uh, and it would be the first one uh, on sexual go orientation to, to, go to, to trial. actually go to trial. Okay. Well, and, and actually when uh, when the women pleaded guilty, when Ashley and Alexis pleaded guilty to the hate crimes charges against them, those were the first convictions uh, to actually be registered, uh, according to uh, Judge Tatenhove,
0: the federal district judge here. Uh, says, is, is, that, is that surprising given the amount of time that has gone yes. by and the, the news that we've heard of? I mean, obviously, there, it, it always depends on the facts and whether you can make it a federal case. But given the amount of anti-LGBT violence we know is out there, right. that this would be the first test of, of that law?
1: Yes, although the the facts date back uh, quite a while. You know, These, right. these things take time to unfold. Uh, criminal prosecutions sometimes take quite a long time to actually get to the trial stage. Uh, so perhaps it's not that – I mean this took place in April two, 2011.
0: Right, and here we are talking about it in 2013. And we should get right. to – it might go without saying, but we should emphasize it, and our, many of our listeners probably already know this, that it's not enough. I mean this is the core of the case, Right. It, it's off, let's put it it's often the case that people may have a ri- variety of motives or at least demonstrate evidence of a v- potential variety of motives for savagely beating someone or attacking them. And the whole thing here turns on whether we can say based on the evidence a jury could say that it was because of the right. victim's sexual orientation right. as opposed to just one of yeah, here, here's
1: the deal. The women pleaded guilty to the hate crimes charges. okay? And that fact, of course, was withheld from the jury. Uh, The jury was not supposed to know that uh, because the men were being tried. And uh, in charging the jury, the judge had to figure out because there is no precedent for this. This would be the first case where a federal district judge had to charge a jury on a sexual orientation hate crime. But it was not the first time that a federal judge had to charge on a hate crime as such because the federal hate crime statute dates back decades, and it has covered race uh, and uh, national origin in the past. So uh, looking at the old case law and looking at more recent case law involving other statutes that use the phrase because of, uh, in the hate crimes law it says that uh, the crime is committed because of the sexual orientation or gender identity of the victim, uh, Judge Tattenhof said, well, what does the state have to prove when the statute says because of? And he says, based on the case law, it seems to me that they have to prove that the sexual orientation of the victim was the, uh, he, he, phrases re- the he said the, the substantial, substantial factor, factor. The main In other words, that it was the main reason uh, that even if there were other motivations, that this is the one that really caused them to and go he, forward I, and do it. It's
0: fair to say – I mean he's – this is an interesting decision because this judge yeah, invites us into yeah. that struggle as a right. judge to make sense of – I mean he says – you know, words have – you know, people argue over their meaning and I suspect people will argue over the meaning of these words. And he's really agonizing, as you put it, with how to properly interpret those right. words in a context of a case and, like and that.
1: And this is, this is very timely because one of the Supreme Court's end-of-term decisions involves this very issue, this because-of issue. One of the cases decided by the Supreme Court, actually the same week as the uh, marriage equality cases – Involved Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act and the question of how to interpret the anti-retaliation provision of that statute, which says that an employer may not take action against someone because they have invoked their rights under the statute of father, of father charge under the uh, civil rights law, that sort of thing. And the case involved a doctor. Uh, at the University of Texas Medical Center, who claimed that he had been discriminated against because of his national origin, Dr. Nassar. And uh, he also claimed that as a result of his filing discrimination complaints, the director of the medical center had intervened to prevent him from getting a staff medical position at the affiliated hospital. And uh, the court said that in deciding the retaliation claim, The question would be whether uh, the complaint that he filed was the sole reason why the director of the hospital opposed him getting staff privileges at the hospital or becoming a staff physician at the hospital. And it seemed that there was an affiliation agreement between the hospital and the university that said you had to be a member of the faculty of the medical school to get a staff position at the hospital. And Nassar was no longer a member of the faculty when he applied to the hospital. So the court said there is a non-discriminatory reason, or at least not discrimination on any of the factors under Title VII. Uh, And therefore uh, the fact that he had raised a discrimination claim wasn't the sole reason. And the Supreme Court in deciding that case referred back to an earlier case under the Age Discrimination in Employment Act, the Gross case, in which it had interpreted because of language the same way. And, uh, and so the judge looks at this, uh, Judge Tattenhove, in this hate crimes case, and he says, well, I have because of language in this statute, am I going to charge the jury that Mr. Pennington's sexual orientation has to be the sole motivating factor? Well, clearly not. And he, he says the legislative history of the hate crimes law suggests that to say that it has to be the sole factor would be going too far. But on the other hand, the prosecutor was asking me to, to, to tell the jury if it was a motivating factor, if it played any role in selecting him as a victim, they could convict on the hate crimes count. And he says, I can't do that because the statute says because of. And because of, according to the Supreme Court, means more than it was one of many factors. It has to have been pretty significant.
0: The almost the but for cause, I think.
1: And he looks back at older hate crimes cases and he says there seems to be a body of law, at least it's federal circuit courts and district courts. It's it's not yet the Supreme Court. Uh, There's a body of law that suggests substantial, you know, that it has to be the substantial factor, not a substantial, the substantial factor. So the jury has to believe that if Pennington wasn't gay, this wouldn't have happened to him. And the prosecution seems to have suggested uh, that him, him being gay was the reason the women targeted him. I mean, they pleaded guilty to that. But the evidence didn't persuade the jury that that was the motivating factor for the men,
0: and, or and at least the substantial I'm ask you a question. I have, I have a suspicion you might say, look, there's no way I can speculate about that, or no. we can generalize. What did but, the jury... But, well, is there a reason to expect that perhaps in cases involving LGBT victims that perhaps... Was the jury biased? Well, I don't know if I'd ask it that way, although if you want to answer that question, I'd be happy to hear it. But I just wonder, it seems like we, let me put it this way, I think there are probably a lot of cases where um, a victim based on their race, why someone is screaming a racial epithet. I mean, here, okay, it was the women screaming it, so maybe there's that complication, but it seems like there might be less hesitation to just declare well yeah, it makes a lot of sense that probably but for the person's race they would be yeah. they would not have been well, subject to. Is and, there a reason to well, su- it's, whether it's hesitation to use this new provision, it's a new provision, or perhaps jury bias towards LGBT in general, LGBT people in general, or the, the vestiges and continuing there, the gay the gay panic defense sort of or jury even.
1: nullification here. I don't think they were raising gay panics. No, but I mean in the air in a, about, in a, if they did. But You know, looking at this, it's possible the jury thought, well, the judge is going to throw the book at these guys anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're obviously guilty. The question is what they're guilty of. And the judge did throw the book at them. I mean, uh, there's a separate uh, opinion that the judge issued on June 20th explaining his sentencing decisions. And uh, Jason got 30 years in prison. Uh, Anthony got 17 years in prison. Uh, the women who pled guilty to the hate crimes charges got much shorter sentences, partly because they didn't physically right. beat up Mr. Pennington uh, and uh, partly because uh, there were other circumstances. I mean, it turns out Jason had a criminal record that was somewhat extensive, which, when you use the federal sentencing guidelines, leads to an enhancement. Uh, and there were other other problems that led to enhancements. Uh, so they both got pretty extensive sentences, even without the hate crime. With the hate crime... They would have gotten even longer sentences, but uh, once it expects that, that 30 years is is pretty rough punishment. There's also going to be a restitution uh, remedy that uh, the uh, the judge charged the prosecutor to come up with an amount and evidence in support of an amount to uh, restitution to Pennington for the injuries he suffered. Uh, so, you know, but but getting back to to the issue of interpreting uh, what the burden of proof is going to be, it turns out. That The burden of proof tends to be very high on these hate crime cases, and it's very difficult to convict on them. Uh, Even when people are shouting epithets, it turns out it's difficult to convict on them. Well, you
0: identified this phenomenon that I've heard, seen written about before, too, With also this sense of when you know they're going to get – they're likely or going to get a pretty significant punishment to begin with for the underlying crime. There does seem to be sometimes a tendency to perhaps – and there split, may be a situation, the and, and
1: there may be a situation where the jury is unanimous on the fact that these people should be convicted, but divided as to whether it's a hate crime. And so, to resolve it and not have a hung jury, they'll decide to acquit on the hate crime charge and convict. On I it. wanted
0: to get to one point we were talking about this a bit before we started uh, offline, and that's that said, you, you seem to take a lesson from this case that's perhaps broader than just the federal hate crimes. Line. As you m- mentioned
1: earlier, yeah, yeah, I mean, we tend to get all mobilized as a community. Politically, to get a statute passed, get an anti-discrimination statute passed, get uh, a hate crime statute passed, get uh, don't ask, don't tell repealed. But then we have to be very concerned about follow-up because it's not enough just to get a statute passed. You've got to make sure the prosecutors are really throwing themselves into it you know, to, to solve the problem if it's a criminal statute. Uh, with don't ask, don't tell, we've got to make sure that gay people who are in the military... Can safely function there and are being treated equally. So, you know, we, we need to have follow up. And this is a good example of that. Uh, there are ways to try to amend these statutes yeah, we'll just, after the fact we'll just to cure to our, the problem. We'll just
0: go to our highly functional Congress and well, ask them to clarify.
1: That's it. a problem. I mean, <laughs> when, when the Supreme Court adopted this because of language in construing Title VII back in the 1980s in the context of a sex discrimination case, Congress came back and amended Title Seven to say that if the plaintiff shows by a preponderance of the evidence that her race or her sex or her religion or her national origin was a motivating factor, then they have shown a violation of the statute. And if the employer comes back and shows that there were other nondiscriminatory reasons that would also justify, then we may limit the remedy we may say that you can't order reinstatement of someone who was justifiably discharged even though they were singled out for being uh, a woman or a person of color. Uh, So Congress put a fix in, but just for uh, status-related discrimination under Title VII. And the Supreme Court came back and said, well, since they didn't, extend that to the age discrimination law or to the retaliation provisions. They
0: didn't mean to do it. They can't do
1: it here. You know, we're not going to do it here. And now that because of interpretation comes back to haunt us the hate crunch look.
0: I'm, I'm going to leave it there with that hopeful thought about Congress and fixing something in the same sentence being expressed by you uh, we'll take a pause on that for deep reflection when we come back we're going to turn to the Michigan segment of our of our podcast uh, we'll be discussing a case out of Michigan involving a student's First Amendment rights to express anti-gay, anti-gay statements in in class during anti-bullying day which is sort of the perfect backdrop for one to express anti-gay animus stay with us <laughs> We're back discussing uh, the case of Glowacki v. Howell Public School District. This is in Michigan. Uh, and as we signaled before the break, it involves some anti-gay statements that were made in class by a high school student on the occasion of the school's anti-bullying day. So let me do the honors of setting out some facts on this case. I did write about this for Law Notes, so I may be a little bit too amped up and too close to it. But I tried to put myself back in high school and imagine what it would be like to be there on this day, this this day in class. So... To raise awareness of the bullying of LGBT students in the aftermath of the suicide of Rutgers student um, Tyler Clemente, which was obviously a national tragedy and galvanized the movement to try to, um, to stop um, stop bullying of LGBT students and all, all students, um, a, the, the, the alliance organized an anti-bullying day, the Gay Straight Student Alliance at the high school. They distributed a flyer, it was approved by the school, and it promoted the day and it asked students and teachers to wear the color purple in recognition of the day. Now, in connection with the day's activities, a teacher independently printed some T-shirts with the slogan, Tyler's Army, in reference to Tyler Clemente, on the front of it, and, quote-unquote, fighting evil with kindness on the back of the T-shirt. Sold some T-shirts to students at cost. Some teachers bought them or got them as well. And uh, this teacher didn't believe the T-shirts were about homosexuality at all, but instead a non-controversial statement against bullying. Yeah. 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 Be kind. Um, so one – teacher Johnson McDowell I believe he's an economics teacher I could be wrong he wears his Tyler's army t-shirt to school on anti-bullying day thought it would be a good way to commemorate the day and so some of the facts are in dispute from this point forward but it seems um, this is I don't know which part of this is this is you know, it's, Get all to the, the st- Confederate yeah, belt buckle, I, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> All the students need to getting in the act for the day, right? Yeah. Uh, it's like this is a day we could express our solidarity against bullying by wearing a Confederate flag belt buckle. So that was one student, a, a female student, and uh, Mr. McDowell, the teacher, uh, asked the student to remove the – the belt buckle. uh, And I I believe she did remove the belt buckle. And one other student, Daniel Glowacki, uh, raised his hand and and asked why she couldn't wear that Confederate flag belt buckle when students and teachers could wear purple shirts and display rainbow flags for anti-bullying day. So McDowell tries to explain the difference in symbolism between perhaps the rainbow pride flag and the Confederate flag. Perhaps there's some historical differences between... Perhaps the excre- that one stands
1: for <laughs> discrimination and the other stands against discrimination. You know,
0: that could be a distinction yes. one could draw. Yes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I was... I, I did remark on this and not to parrot my own writing, but I, I did wonder whether the girl went out and bought this, specifically the other day, whether she asked mom and dad if they happened to have a Confederate flag, yeah. belt buckle sitting
1: around. Well, great-grandpa's belt buckle from <laughs> serving in the Confederate Army during the Civil it's War.
0: Amazing. Okay, so anyway, so there's this exchange. Uh, the, the Confederate belt buckles is not what this case is about surprisingly so daniel apparently voices concerns as i mentioned about the t-shirts and he clarifies that he thinks the purple t-shirts and the festivities around the day i guess are are discriminating against catholics and he says i don't accept gays and mcdowell says well you can't say i don't accept gays in class any more than you can say i don't accept blacks uh and daniel clarifies he says i don't accept gays because i'm catholic So then after an exchange with Daniel reiterating that he does not accept gays, McDowell tosses him out of the class. This is another great part of this story. Uh, You can tell I'm being sarcastic. But another classmate <laughs> raises his hand and says, I don't accept gays either and asks if I could leave class as well. And McDowell says, sure, you can. So now we have the belt buckle, the Confederate belt buckle girl, the, the I, I can't, don't accept gays because I'm a I'm, I'm, I'm Catholic guy, and the guy who says, hey, I don't accept either. Can I get out of class, guy? So he's the one who just wants to get out of class it sounds like. So basically – okay.
1: And his – and, and Golaki's kid brother.
0: Well, that gets it. It becomes a family affair at this point. Says, right? My speech is being stifled. Yeah, so at here, school. We are. so what happens? What happens? Daniel is revved up along with his family. He brings suit against McDowell under the school and the school district for alleging violation of, the, of his rights to freedom of speech under the First Amendment and equal protection under the Fourteenth Amendment. And as you just hinted at, Art. The younger brother, who wasn't even in class that day, uh, he, bring, he joins the case arguing that his speech is chilled and that he's fearful of expressing himself and his religion. And the case is brought by the Thomas Moore Law Center with the help – I mean we should – you know I should stop joking around I perhaps, but with the help of the American Civil Liberties Union who joins in support of the free speech claims of plaintiffs. Okay, I'm going to take a breath, Art, And, and their
1: mother is the official plaintiff.
0: Yes, uh, although he, he becomes – be. the, the elder son becomes old enough to then ta- bring, continue this case, I think, uh, in his own name. I think he becomes uh, okay. a, emancipated uh, right. before going on to college, where he is a hero, as I understand. I think if you Google him, you'll find his picture on lots of right-wing blo- – not right-wing, excuse me. That was the wrong term. Conservative. Conservative blocks. Okay, Religious. so I want to I back up now. I want to ask, Art, you're, you're, you read lots of cases with some really interesting kind of terrible exchanges in the workplace, in the classroom, uh, in, in, in all sorts of venues. What do you make of this exchange between the student and the, parent, uh, and the teacher? And could you speak about that through the lens perhaps also of what a gay student – there could have been a gay student in class. How that gay student might have felt witnessing this exchange in class on anti-bullying Especially
1: because when we're, when we're talking about high school – uh, there may be some out gay students, there may be some closeted gay students, there may be some kids who are struggling with their sexuality. And this is a, a, a very important issue because of the way the First Amendment comes down in this, in this kind of case. Uh, generally, uh, high school students have First Amendment rights. High school students have rights to freedom of speech, but the school has a right to maintain an atmosphere in which the educational opportunities are available to all students and that particular students aren't suffering an impairment of their ability to get an education because of the conduct of other students. So although high school students have First Amendment rights, the school has sort of time, place, and manner rights to restrict...
0: Uh, to basically ensure that there's, there's no went. disruption to the learning right. and... And, 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 and
1: this is, this is where there's, there's a very interesting case out of the Ninth Circuit that, uh, that we wrote about in Law Notes years ago Uh, the uh, Harper versus the Poway School District in California. Uh, And this was a case where the Ninth Circuit found that allowing anti-gay slogans on t-shirts to be worn uh, on the so-called Day of Silence when uh, people are supposed to be talking about how gay people are silenced by discrimination. Uh, They said that this could have an adverse psychological impact on gay students to, that the school allows people to wear t-shirts with anti-gay slogans on them. Uh, the Seventh Circuit has disagreed with that, and the Supreme Court ultimately vacated the Ninth Circuit opinion, but on other grounds that it had become moot by the time it had been, gotten up to the Ninth Circuit because all the students involved had graduated. But uh, there is this, this recurring theme in cases around the country that have come up, especially because of the Day of Silence thing. Uh, where where then anti gay groups print up t shirts and encourage students to wear the t shirts saying that you know gay is not happy and stuff like mm-hmm. that uh and and so we have this ongoing first amendment struggle in the public schools about the degree to which the schools can censor discriminatory speech and of course the censorship is based on the content of the speech, and therefore since it 's content based censorship of speech, there are really significant First Amendment issues. Right and, and the
0: court reaches that, 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 that issue here saying, look, it's 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 viewpoint discrimination. That right. it was it was what he was expressing and a so view he was right. expressing. Right. And so then the
1: question for the for the court is that doesn't mean that you have that that a student has absolute license to voice in class any viewpoint they happen to hold on any issue regardless of the consequences and the impact on others. And so the court has to decide, does the school have a legitimate interest in suppressing this speech because it is harmful in some way or it's disruptive?
0: And what, what is the test? Because, again, this may have been shorthand by the judge in this case. But the judge here, here gave us examples of the type of disruption that could emerge to support the idea that you know the pendulum swung too far the other way and that we have a right to – I think he brought up truancy rates and examiners. Uh, in the – this is just a – This well, is a, this, this, this where are you going to see that show up yeah, the in, in judge real saying, time?
1: Where is the tangible evidence that anyone was harmed by this statement? Well, and the and Ninth Circuit say, said, well, psychological harm is also well, significant. I,
0: that's what I was going to say is if one assumes there was a gay student in that class, could not the psychological harm be assumed that hearing yes. – that? I mean – and Would
1: this impose a barrier to that student uh-huh. being able to get an equal right to well, education? I, and
0: I want to bring up a story that I haven't thought about in years. And mm-hmm. I want to – and this really Happened. And I didn't prepare this for today. I'm okay. having a memory. You're having a memory. Memory. Oh, and dangerous. it's dangerous. And it's okay. high school, and I'm a 10th grader. You're remembering high school. And I am, and I'm like, my heart's racing because I remember this day very clearly. And not nostalgically. No, not nostalgically. Okay. And my heart, it's beating. And so maybe in retrospect, you know, I didn't know if I was gay. Maybe I had an inkling, or maybe I just had a sense that this was not a great thing, you know, for anyone to have to look at. But there was a... There was a discussion of the AIDS crisis in, in another class. I was in the classroom, but there's a bulletin board. And we're talking 1980s here? We're talking or 19 – I graduated in 1994. This was in 1992. So pretty – I mean, AIDS crisis is still very much a crisis, but this is as much in the air, basically, right. the what's going on in the world. And there's a variety of posters in the room. Again, my class has nothing to do with it, but this other teacher teaches a current events class. And I'm staring at a very large poster that says AIDS equals a punishment from God. Mm-hmm. And then it uses the words in AIDS to equate to, you know, intravenous drug use, the I for intravenous drug use, sex, S for sex before marriage, a, you know, whatever it was. And I remember sitting in class thinking, I can't think about anything else than how wrong that looks to me. And this is a student's poster. This was a right. student's poster. And I went up to the teacher and I said, I'd like her to remove it or let me put up a countervailing sign. What should have happened in that situation?
1: You should have been allowed to put up a countervailing sign at the very least. I mean the ACLU would say more speech, mm-hmm. counter objectionable speech with more speech, which is why they came in on the side of, of the Golatskys here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that to an incident from my childhood. See? I didn't even know this was going to happen. When, when I was an elementary school student on Long Island and the custom in the 1950s, if you will cast your mind back to the middle of the last century, <laughs> there I'm really dating myself. Well, you know, they sang Christmas carols in yeah. December, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe someone would insist on sneaking in. I have a little dreidel for yes. the Jews in the class. But uh, I remember... Uh, that it was a big deal. The rabbi from our synagogue went to the Board of Education meeting and protested that it was oppressive to the Jewish students to have to sit there through the singing of Christmas carols about the birth of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. in public school. And there was a lot of back and forth on this. I don't think they I, – I think Christmas carols in schools, I'm not sure what the situation is now. But, you know, it, it was uh, – we, we, we are a religiously diverse people. And you're not supposed to establish one religion. And I remember feeling, you know, very much an outsider, very much, you know, unequal because uh, there was not a big Jewish presence at this suburban school in Suffolk County. All right,
0: I feel like we're reliving. I, I, we're getting. We're from the same. T- <laughs> yes. I think we're from the same town, actually. Yeah. So we're really reliving a shared yeah. history. But I, I can tell you that it wasn't that much different thirty, forty yeah. years later.
1: But but in any event, you know, the, 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 there can be uh, there can be things said in a classroom. They can really impair the ability of individual students to focus on their studies.
0: Well, let me – then because, let me give you the fa- – what right. if – there? What if? and I want to ask you your, your view of what the court does here in the terms of the analysis. But if there was a gay student, an out-gay student, if it became obvious that there was a gay student in the class who whether broke down in tears, yelled out in anger, left the room and didn't – said he or she didn't want to come back to class – would that change the court's analysis? It's almost like because there was not a big Perhaps response, would, that somehow those the, because those the words court are said there
1: was no indication that his comments were targeted at any individual, uh, or that and that there was no evidence that any individual was particularly harmed. Uh, you
0: That's know, it's a harm it's, we might not learn about. Right. That was the it's, problem.
1: It's hard to know. There, there are silent injuries. That's there are right. Invisible injuries. Uh, this judge was looking for tangible injuries, and uh, I think. Part of the problem is that the circuit courts are split about this, on, on the degree to which schools can suppress uh, speech that would be seen as discriminatory. I think if, if a student was yelling racial slurs in a class... Uh, We wouldn't be having this discussion at all. Well, that's what's
0: so striking. And that's why the teacher here, and he was at first very much reprimanded. He was told by the the school essentially you bullied a student on anti-bullying day because you didn't agree with their thoughts. You overreacted. You overreacted. He suspended. Apologized. It was was a big uh, thing. Then the union, they filed a grievance and they pulled back and much lesser sanction. They said it was more about the fact that he raised his voice and slammed the door or whatever the case may be. But the core of what he was saying to the student I thought was actually pretty instructive, which is – He was giving us a sort of insight into, well, if we were having a different discussion, if you just said I don't accept blacks – I mean I guess maybe it would be harder to say I don't accept blacks because I'm a Catholic. Although maybe there was a time where – maybe there became a religion where that wouldn't be such a a strange quotation, right, right? Uh, if you go back in time. I think he was sort of saying we wouldn't even be having this discussion if we were talking about race. And I thought that was actually a fairly true statement. And yeah. so there still is this difference. I, I of that think the
1: problem is sending him out of the class. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think the, the, the problem was so much what he said to him but sending him out of the class.
0: So if he continued to have this dialogue where he basically said, you know, you know you're
1: – If it ended up, well, we'll have to agree to disagree. I don't think we would have this lawsuit.
0: Although clearly McDowell – one could say he overreacted. The other could say that he was reacting to try to prevent further damage to the – Unnamed or unknown gay students sitting listening to this. Perhaps well,
1: he could state his disagreement with the students and say, "All right, let's drop it and go on okay. to our lesson."
0: Although I'm gonna, I'm gonna close with I did more speculation. I love speculation. This kid, like the Confederate flag belt-wearing girl. They seemed amped up for a fight. Is my read of these facts that this well, was Anti-Bullying Day? They were tired. They knew, this, you know, the hoopla with the gay flags and the yes. and the purple shirts and the. They were ready for their fight. Is how well, it felt.
1: They were taking the position of Vladimir Putin.
0: What you would know, that be? There's a lot of no position.
1: propaganda for homosexuality. <laughs> That's the new law in Russia. That- Everyone's right. uh, everyone's got to stop uh, drinking vodka. While for a they're while. pouring
0: it in the streets, and yes. good good for everybody okay. pouring the vodka in the streets. But we
1: can't talk about that because that happened after we went to press. That's right. Issue. We have to pretend okay. we don't know about that. Okay.
0: All right. So we'll leave it with vodka, and we're going to take another short break. When we return, we're staying in Michigan. More Michigan. What's cases. the deal with that? Uh, but this Not is two cases exactly. Two cases out of Michigan in which the historic decision in Windsor, which we talked about on our special podcast last week, it seems like, uh, is taking center stage in in, in a fight over marriage in Michigan and a domestic partner. Mm -hmm. We're back discussing two cases, um, DeBoer v. Snyder. Did I get that right? And Bassett Bassett. v. Snyder, uh, Rick Snyder, the governor of Michigan, defendant. Along with the state, I guess, in both cases. Um, the first case concerns claims by a lesbian couple that the state's adoption law, which forbids same-sex couples from jointly adopting, as well as the state's marriage amendment, limiting marriage to a man – limiting marriage to only a man and a woman, violates their rights under the 14th Amendment. Um, in Art – and I'm going to fast forward a little bit. In in this case, the, the DeBoer case, something interesting seems to be happening. Yes. And you, you – kind of point to this in your writing about this case, and that is the judge, a Reagan appointee, senior U.S. District Judge Bernard Friedman, seemed to uh, – maybe it was expressed – invite an amended complaint in this case. It started out being about the restriction on the ability to adopt right. as a same-sex couple. And then it seemed to be that he invited them to amend it to include a challenge to the, the, the marriage exclusion itself. Well, well, the What's the about? Well, the way it comes
1: up is that under Michigan adoption law, uh, a single person can adopt and a married couple can adopt. But unmarried couples can't adopt. All right. So April DeBoer and Jane Rouse, uh, longtime partners, each of them had adopted kids. They wanted to adopt each other's kids. They said, we're a family. We want to both be related to to all the kids that we're raising together. And they went to court to uh, complain that it violated their rights to equal protection. And Judge Friedman said to them, well, the problem is the state won't let you marry. If they let you marry, you could adopt. So you should really add to your complaint – that the state should be required to let you marry. After all, you're raising these kids together. Why shouldn't you be able to get married? Right, right. You're like any other couple that are raising kids together who want to be married. Uh, so, and he uh, he suggested this even before the Supreme Court had ruled in the Windsor case. You know,
0: I didn't I didn't realize that. I guess that makes sense given the timing you of know, this case, even more significant. Uh, some so, ways, right?
1: so he uh, he suggested they do that, and they amended their complaint, and the state filed a motion to dismiss, uh, claiming that there is no valid legal claim here. And uh, he waited on the motion a little bit. And uh, after the Supreme Court decided the Windsor case, he said, well, looks like the Windsor case gives you some plausibility for your 14th Amendment marriage claim here. Uh, And the Windsor case also gives you some plausibility on the adoption claim. The the Windsor case says we don't have second-tier marriages in this country when it said that uh, Congress couldn't uh, rule out any federal recognition for same-sex marriages even though they were legal under state law. We can't have second-tier marriages. He said, well, perhaps we can't have second-tier relationships either. Perhaps and, we and can't it, say that, that same-sex couples are fated to have second-tier relationships that don't have all the same legal rights as opposite sex couples.
0: Including also the citation in Windsor to impairing the rights of children. Right. Uh, which and is and a Justice big part Kennedy,
1: In fact, that came up uh, – and that gave people a lot of hope when they listened to the oral argument or read, th- read the transcript I think he raised
0: the issue of children the forty yes. thousand or whatever times. was the voices of the children in being both rid- of those yeah.
1: right both of those hearings he said you know the, don't the children of the who are being raised by these couples have something to say here? who's speaking for them mm-hmm. uh, and uh now, on the other hand, uh, Friedman also points out he says the state also can find some arguments in the Windsor case because one of the central concerns of Justice Kennedy, in his opinion, was that traditionally states get to decide who marries, not the federal government.
0: And is that classic Kennedy in the sense that here we have the judge pointing to two parts of the decision and saying that each side has something to work well, with? Well,
1: this, this goes back to something we talked about during our special podcast. Why did Kennedy have this big section about federalism at the start of his opinion and then pivot mm-hmm. and not base it on federalism but base it on the Fifth Amendment, on due process and equal protection. And then uh, Chief Justice Roberts in his dissent saying, well, this yeah, is a federalism. 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 <laughs> this is and a federalism. Scalia
0: this. jumping out <laughs> of Australia the chair. Says, no, they, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that was a lot of fun. Uh,
0: By the way, that gets to – is this – sorry to jump in, but uh, – Is this not Scalia's fears, or I don't know if you call them fears? Prediction almost coming true, potentially almost immediately that you're going to be you're going to see people run into state court, you know, run into court and and argue—not state court, but argue about the state level bans—are no different than and and
1: he and he's right. I mean, some of this predates when we went to press uh, on the summer issue, and some of it has been in the week or two since we went to press, but all over the country. These 14th Amendment marriage equality cases are being filed in places like Kentucky and Pennsylvania. i uh, just got a press release that uh, Lambda and the ACLU are filing the Virginia case the day after we're taping this podcast. So there, there are cases all over the country. But this case from Michigan and a similar case in North Carolina, uh, which the ACLU is, is litigating in North Carolina, there's a, a female same-sex couple who are litigating – for the right of uh, co-parent adoption, which isn't allowed under North Carolina law. And the ACLU is planning to ask the state and the judge to agree to expand the case to be a challenge on their anti-marriage amendment, which uh, was just passed last year. So uh, very, very interesting situation here that these adoption cases are being expanded into marriage cases.
0: And I'm kind of the makeup of this. I, I am a little bit intrigued by the Reagan appointee in the, I mean, fitting. I mean, seems poised potentially. I mean, I think you speculate at the end of this article that this seems poised to write perhaps a Kennedy-esque decision in this it, case. It looks
1: possible. I mean, the judge, the judge does say that both sides can find some support in Windsor, but uh, from his rhetoric, he seems to be more disposed to the the side that says that I we, mean, we says, don't have second-tier pla- families. plaintiffs
0: are prepared to claim Windsor as their own. Their briefs sure to be replete with references to the newly enthroned in their own triumvirate of Roma v. Evans, Lawrence v. Texas, and now Windsor. And why shouldn't they? I mean, that's – I don't know. I think think the judge is on our side is what I think. Well, what I do think, you think? Maybe I think, the law is on our side, too. I think,
1: I think it's possible that the law is definitely trending in the direction of equal rights for same-sex couples.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't you – wouldn't, you'd invest in us at this point if we were a stock. You would I us. think we're a good bet. And I think <laughs> – and
1: the other case that we're talking about. Yes. Oh, Michigan, I, I had a transition for that, clear. which is this right, subject – transition. My bet.
0: transition is cruelty. 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 So not only is it – we have the cruel – Taking away insurance from people yes. who are sick. Cruel. cruel on the heels of the first case is about what making it so you can't adopt unless you're married and then saying you can't marry unless you're opposite sex couples is like what do they want from us they just want us to go away well <laughs> yes and then to make it even better we're going to take away your health care benefits you've, you've, been, you've been reading Scalia's sense haven't you <laughs> go away gay hold people. on all right i'm gonna hide under the table can you finish the, the podcast <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's ridiculous anyway okay bassett okay. bassett
1: against snyder so so this is a bit complicated uh Various public employers in Michigan have been extending uh, benefits to domestic partners of uh, employees. At first, it was mainly same-sex domestic partners, and they were requiring them to meet criteria that sounded s- awfully like marriage. And uh, the state passed one of these anti-marriage amendments, constitutional amendments, which said that nothing, uh, neither marriage or any similar, you don't sort do of anything like thing, marriage, you know, yeah. for for same-sex couples. And in subsequent litigation, the state Supreme Court said, well, you know, these domestic partnership programs under which people have to have a marital-like relationship, that sounds too similar to us. So after the Supreme Court ruled on that, some municipalities, some public employers went back and they said, "Okay, we're going to do it differently. We're going to set up a system where cohabiting adults, one of whom is a public employee, they can designate their cohabiting partner to get benefits and we're not going to have all of these elaborate things and it's going to be both same sex and opposite sex and so we can we can avoid the problem of the constitutional amendment okay uh so the legislature got upset by this and they passed this law that basically said no benefits for anyone who isn't married to an employee and uh in this case which was brought by uh, several public employees and their partners uh, who received the notice from the state, your insurance is going to terminate on X this is date. this
0: the best kind of notice you receive yeah. in the mail. You come yeah. home after a long day. Your insurance day is going to be canceled. <laughs> it's yeah. amazing.
1: And some of them were, were people who have medical conditions for which they're getting treatment. It's really and, you frightening. Know, it's, yeah. it's very frightening. In other words, irreparable injury, which yes. is what you want to find if you want a preliminary injunction. Right. And this, ca- this uh, opinion that came out on June 28th is all about preliminary injunctive relief. Uh, but of course... In order to uh, issue a preliminary injunction, the court must find not only irreparable injury to the plaintiff if the injunction is not issued, but also a good chance of success success. on the merits, likelihood of success. And this is probably – this is June 28th, two days after the Windsor decision. This is probably the first – Judicial opinion to cite I think it's been Wednesday.
0: cited as the first to cite Windsor. Yeah. It could
1: be well by me. <laughs> oh,
0: okay. I like quoting. You've a been lot. reading law. Notes I know. I, I don't even why why go to any yeah. other source. Well, it's, really?
1: it's the first I heard of. It was like the first out of the box. Well, it was
0: pretty. It was pretty soon. It was two days, as and, you mentioned. And the, the
1: judge same. granted the preliminary injunction. Uh,
0: Tell us, as part of this, the judge has to tackle head-on some of the alleged justifications for the law, including this idea that it promotes "quote unquote" traditional marriage. And, um, well,
1: that's garbage after Windsor, <laughs> you know.
0: And these arguments are w- before David, Windsor have been left at the yes. court. But This is I Judge want to read, David Lawson. I, I, want you to, I want to read a quote to you about Read the quote to me, Brad. I would. It's quoting another case, but uh-huh. it, it, uh, the, the, the judge writes, The defendant's justifications come close to striking the court with the force of a five-week-old unrefrigerated dead fish. Can you unpack that for us? What is he saying?
1: What he's saying is it stinks. It stinks. <laughs> it stinks to high heaven. That is, the state is coming in here. I wish all
0: legal writing could be right. like this, by
1: the way. The, yeah, you know, the, the state is coming in here and it's making the very arguments that the Supreme Court found insufficient to sustain Section 3 of DOMA, basically. He's saying that, you know, the state comes in and they say, okay, we banned domestic partner benefits for anybody, Not just same-sex couples, also different-sex couples. This isn't an anti-gay measure. This is about saving money for municipalities that were spending money on these benefits that the legislature thought they shouldn't be spending. This is an economic measure. And he said, well, for one thing, you know, the legislative history was all gay, 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 gay. We can't let the gays have these benefits. So it's clearly an anti-gay measure. And for another, you're just making the same argument they made down in Arizona. And uh, by interesting coincidence, the day before this decision was issued, the Supreme Court denied cert on the Arizona case where the state was trying to get a preliminary injunction overturned. The, uh, the Arizona had done a very similar thing uh, when uh, Janet Napolitano, who uh, is retiring as uh, Secretary of Homeland Security – she was previously governor of Arizona – And by administrative order, she had extended benefits to domestic partners of Arizona uh, state employees. And then under her successor, a Republican, Jan Brewer, the uh, legislature rescinded those benefits. And uh, Lambda Legal went to court on behalf of uh, some Arizona public employees whose partners were about to lose their insurance benefits and said, this is an anti-gay measure. And the state said, oh, it's not an anti-gay measure. We got rid of all partner benefits. And the judge said a word that i can't say on yeah, know, please don't don't on, do on the it, podcast don't I, I not not say you don't know.
0: do it
1: the judge well don't the judge, say it art i won't say it <laughs> this is nonsense the judge said this is this is i mean look at the legislative history this is an anti gay measure it's uh you know uh, the opposite sex partners can get married to but get art, the I
0: would not go so far as to tar to tar the political branches with the with the suggestion of animus. animus. I think no. Judge no. Roberts and about Justice, Dolma, Justice Scalia. I would you know, never. We would never. There's no animus. No. These are just
1: fair-minded people who <laughs> have a difference <laughs> of opinion. Having day a day.
0: different kind of day. Yeah. Having a bad day, maybe. Okay. So, so
1: Judge Lawson says, "Look, it's clearly an anti-gay measure. Uh, after Windsor, they're going to have a hard time sustaining an anti-gay measure. Yeah. Certainly, the arguments they're making here aren't enough to stop a preliminary injunction."
0: So I, the lesson here again is: we see very quickly Windsor. Winter. Seeming to have well it already is having immediate. Windsor is having an immediate impact both in existing cases and in cases that have been brought since. Right. So we're gonna leave it there. We're gonna end with our of note section. I don't think you're gonna beat Dead Fish, the, the stench of Dead Fish. So you're gonna we're gonna end with a punchy short of note segment from Art Leonard, so stay with us. We're back to close the podcast with Arthur Leonard's of note. Of
1: note, I think this is really a significant sign of the times. Within the past few weeks, President Obama has nominated openly gay, a whole bunch of openly gay people to be ambassadors, and not just you know to places like you know Liechtenstein or something like that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> ambassadors, to ambassadors to Denmark, Spain, uh, Australia, the Dominican Republic, which isn't. Quite as big a deal, and but in fact, the Dominican Republic is turning out to be that's the controversial one. That's the one where it's the
0: one. controversy. Over, that's that's yeah.
1: the, where local religious leaders are unhappy, and also as ambassador for security and cooperation in Europe, which is a major position dealing with the European Union. So, you know, this is re- remember back in the '90s when Clinton Was it nominated it James or Hormel or to be the first openly gay ambassador, and couldn't get it through people. the Senate. Had to do a recess appointment. These people are probably going to go through without too much of a problem.
0: So. Sign of the Times. I like that. Sign of the Times. That's all the time we have for today. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting us at www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can be found in the iTunes store store, where you'll give us lots of stars and good reviews or at legal.podbean.com. And please take a moment to – I already said to give us stars. But you can also follow us on Twitter. Art, do you want to add to that? At legal.org? You're Twittering now? Yeah, we're we're tweeting. Wow. We're tweeting. tweeting. See see how
1: behind the times I am. Yeah, find
0: us on Facebook. You can find this guy to my right who you can't see on Facebook, too. He has lots to say. Thanks for listening.